Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 128 for January 24th, 2008. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 33. This show and the entire Twit Broadcast Network is brought to you by donations from listeners like you. Thanks. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen, the one show where we're not going to mention Heath Ledger. We're not going to mention the uh, stock market crash. We're not going to mention the uh, (laughs) Bernanke's uh, drop of the uh, interest rate of the Federal Reserve Board. This is the show where you don't hear any of that stuff. This is the show where we talk about security. Steve Gibson, hello. How are you today? Yo, Leo. Well, it sounds like your voice is back to full strength here. Back in a little Uh, bit. Every once in a while, I go tenor. Okay, well, well, our listeners are now prepared. I was I was practicing singing uh, uh, high high notes uh, a little earlier on, and I actually was able to hit notes I haven't hit in a long time. Isn't that odd that a cold would would uh, change the register of my voice? That's yeah, a little well, weird. You sound fine here. You, you so. never you never got it, did you? No, nope. Knock no. on wood. Exactly. Do you have any wood in the fortress of security underneath? Underneath the Formica, I think there must be. That's probably. <laughs> I'm not sure if that qualifies as wood, though. That's like that pressed, pressed board stuff. I've, I've never been. To your, I've never been to your lab, but I, 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 I just think I feel it's probably very modern and, uh, you know, kind of masculine. Oh, it's definitely masculine. Yeah. When, 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 when my ex wandered off, I. Uh, covered over the fireplace with bookcases there because I, need, I needed more shelf space there you go. so i knew it <laughs> yeah you can't you can't cover up your fireplace when there's a wife around so <laughs> that, that does not go over really well, well nowadays they're saying don't burn wood don't burn wood it's making people sick stop burning oh, wood. And i mean and i'm in southern california i just had to turn the ac off here oh. on january 23rd oh. so that we didn't have the background sound of the air rushing through our podcast Steve, there are people listening who just had 37 inches of snow <laughs> so so my point is i hardly need a fireplace I down guess here you're right though that's the yeah. last thing you need in southern california so this is a q and a episode every other episode now on our even episodes we do listener feedback but we've also made a pledge to give you the latest security news anything going on in the world of Security out there? Well, one or two big things, but more than last week, it was a rather quiet week. Thank you. Yes. The really significant news is that there is now a remote code execution exploit of the horrible Microsoft Windows TCP IP problem the vulnerability that we talked about last week that's the one they patched uh patch tuesday this month yes so it's absolutely been patched but it is you know i i was saying last week there is just no question this is going to be an internet worm because there are there are still so many machines that are not being patched whether it's because 
they don't pass the Windows uh, validation test, and so they're no longer able to be patched as they used to be, sort of, you know, pirated copies either way, or, uh, you know, who knows why. These, these machines are not getting patched, and there is now... It has been found, and in fact, in some of the security discussions, Microsoft was apparently mitigating the severity. I know that's hard to believe, but they were saying, oh, it's really going to be difficult to exploit this. Well, eh, no. <laughs> it didn't Turns take long. Out, no, it took one week. Yeah. One, you know, so well, since, since I guess in a way, was, it's a zero-day exploit to the norm. That, that was difficult. It took them a whole right. week. Right. So it is now in the wild. And I expect that it won't be long before we see this this demonstration of the vulnerability turned into a worm that works on propagating itself for whatever purpose mm-hmm. around the net. I mean, the 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 good news is that most of these net wide worms have just been created for the sake of proving that they could be done. You know, the original ones, of course, MS Blast was different. It had a destructive payload aimed at Microsoft. But, you know, Code Red and Nimda, they just sort of wanted to see how long they could live and how far they could go. So they weren't doing much. Although you really would expect now, with bots being as popular as they are, that we might see a worm based on this with the express purpose of of creating new zombie machines. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that's something we never saw really before. You now, know, sort of are, gen- when general you say first the, zombie. When you say the exploits are out there, there there isn't yet a worm exploit, just a, no. a script exploiting it uh, from a web page. Right. And it's it's clear to, it's it's easy to say that it that it isn't yet a worm because the whole industry will know the instant a worm happens. I mean, it will be another major event where it's like okay suddenly everyone's routers are getting pinged with this you know nonsense from a worm trying to propagate i mean it'll we'll all know when that happens because it'll it'll explode on the internet well and remember the last time i think it it must be the last time there was a worm of this uh potential magnitude was zotob and that hit cnn and a lot of people but one good thing is that when these things happen and they get a lot of publicity people respond by changing their security policies right so you're at a very good point so each one of these events does does have the nice side effect of you know further maturing people's understanding right. that you know they need to keep their windows systems patched and and they seem to dampen because of that it dampens down so you don't they're not it's not, next time's not as bad right one hopes <laughs> well <laughs> although i mean th- th- this is exactly the oh i i i'm sorry i see what you mean it's that like People have learned to patch, so right. they're now going to be keeping their machines in general more secure well, as because a, they realize, yeah. it, you know, this is a real problem. And as an example, I'm sure that the companies that got bit by Zotub now run internal firewalls on all their machines because they mostly got bit when people brought laptops, infected laptops into the network behind the firewall. Right. And so as 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 these things happen... People kind of build defenses. Of course, it's always closing the barn door after the horse is gone, but but it at least keeps the horse from running out that door again. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the, the the second bit of news is, and I, I saw this when I turned on my little Mac in order to set up our, our Skype session today. Um, Apple has confirmed and patched a rather serious QuickTime vulnerability. Yes, I downloaded it um, today, yeah. 
Yep. Which exists in all versions of QuickTime prior to version 7.4, which we've, which the industry has now moved up to. Everyone who turns on their Macs right. will, will get this. Um, and it's, and it, but it affects both as we, we, we met, we've referred to this, I think last week, cause this seemed familiar to me when I saw the patch coming and it's like, oh, okay, this is what we were, we were learning about last week for the first time, because this is both, um, OS X and windows and the the problem is that it's a remote code execution vulnerability, which which um, can take hold of a machine anytime you run a QuickTime um, video, uh, an image file, or a stream. Right. So you know, pretty significant, and that's been patched too. So you know, the good news is um, people who are using Macs and now what's the I don't even know about QuickTime auto patching for Windows. It does, it does the same thing. It's very similar. Okay, uh, and it happened on my Windows machine. In fact, there was an iTunes update at the same time. So, uh, I I opened my Windows machine. I think this was yesterday, or the day before. I opened my Windows machine and said, "There's a QuickTime patch and an iTunes update. Would you like to download those?" And it looks very similar to any kind of automatic update. It, it, if you've installed QuickTime, unless you've explicitly turned it off, and I don't even know how to do that, it should do that automatically. Yeah, I do know that I get the little QuickTime queue sitting in my tray all yeah. the time. It's like, eh, I don't know what that's there do that. for. Everybody does that, but. I, Always annoys me. They yeah. could, you know, it's like, oh, that that starts it up quicker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I think they just want a little chunk of my screen. It's an ad. It's exactly. Yeah. It's an ad. Yeah. Yep. I think I. So that's all that, we I really had. Turned that off on my uh, system. I think you can actually turn that off. Oh, suppress the icon. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go searching for that. Then. That, <laughs> yeah, that would be a good thing. Definitely worth doing. Uh, I like it best when uh, if you right click on the icon in the system tray and say exit, it says. Okay, but we'll come back unless you don't. Do you not want us to start up automatically ever again? And I think QuickTime is one of the programs that actually has that what I consider good behavior. Yep, yeah. that's a good thing. All right, so that's our uh, updates. Uh, so that's all we had there. I do have a, a fun short spinrite uh, tale to yeah, tell. So I thought you um, this this one was. Uh, um, what do we got this? We got this one in uh, uh, Aaron who is, uh, he, well, he's, he's, it's sort of an interesting story. He says, I was looking for the subject line. He said, uh, just to Spinrite's story, uh, he said, back in 2003, long before I had heard of Spinrite and Steve Gibson, my hard drive crashed in my Dell desktop computer with all of my digital pictures on it. I heard clicking noises, so I was sure, he says in quotes, that it was a total hardware drive failure. Mm-hmm. Dell sent out a replacement drive. I reinstalled, and I was able to reload most of my stuff from a month-old backup. So I lost a month's worth of precious family photos. The data recovery software I tried, clearly not Spinrite, could not help. So I called for estimates from some data recovery companies. Clearly, he really wished he had his month's worth of family photos. He says... I just couldn't afford that, so I put the drive in a box for the next four years. <laughs> for that, dot, at least he saved it. Yes, he says dot 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 just in case. <laughs> that's great. That's like having your. Uh, that's what Walt Disney did with his head. Just yeah, in case, <laughs> somewhere in cryo storage. <laughs> yeah, right just now. in case down the road there something comes along that could fix your hard drive. So so he says, in early 2007, parens three computers later, this guy goes wow. through computers quickly. Wow. He says, I learned of Spinrite while listening to a weekly, or, or he says, while listening to a newly discovered security podcast. Yay. 
<laughs> I had a current computer problem and decided to try Spinrite. It fixed my 2007 problem easily, and my mind was then drawn to that old hard drive in a box in a drawer. Wow. Could it fix that, I wondered. I connected that old drive to an old computer that was lying around and let Spinrite run for the next 26 hours. Well, after four years locked in a failed hard drive, we finally got that month's worth of pictures out of the hard drive. Hey, yeah. The moral of the story is regular backups are a good first line of defense. And he says, friends, remember, I did have a month old backup. He says, and Spinrite is a great second line of defense. Thanks, Steve. That is a nice story. And I love the idea <laughs> that he put his drive in cryogenic storage. Just it's in like, case. <laughs> it, well, and it's like, it's, it's very much actually like, like Walt Disney. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. maybe someday something <laughs> will come along that will be able to recover these. And, you, and you of know, course, it's a good bet. Actually, yeah. even for yeah. Walt Disney, I think it's a good bet. I mean, I'm not going to do that, but I would do it with a hard drive. Sure. Yeah. Of course, Spinrite's been around 20 years before he had the problem. He just never heard about it. Exactly. I had to, I had to laugh when you said that because, I mean, it's like you hear about it in 2003. We, this is. We, <laughs> yeah. What year is it? Yeah, really? <laughs> anyway, let's get to I have some great questions for you. Are you ready to, to talk about uh, listener feedback here? You betcha. We start with Eddie in Watsonville, California. He confesses he shortened his key. <gasps> Dear Steve, I've been a listener of yours for probably a year and a half now. Converted my wireless network to WPA some time ago. And used one of your 63 random printable character perfect passwords to do it. That's grc.com slash passwords. All was well, as long as I only had computers that I could copy and paste the password into. Then I bought myself... A PSP, a Sony PlayStation Portable. After six failed attempts, oh dear, yeah. <laughs> at entering the WPA key, I, <laughs> I decided I didn't really want to take my PSP on the internet anyway. <laughs> oh, that's a pain. It doesn't have a keyboard. You have to do it all. Oh, gosh, I, I feel for them. And I, and I still don't have my iPod Touch on my right. Wi-Fi. I mean, right. I, I hear that it's got Wi-Fi, but I'm not, I can't type my key into that that's thing. That's why I, I don't use the long... I, anyway. I know. Then okay. for Christmas, I received a Wi-Fi desktop internet radio. It supported WPA. I knew I had no chance of entering that ungodly key correctly, so I went back to grc.com slash passwords, copied the first 24 characters of the random alphanumeric string, still took two attempts on the radio and three on the PSP, but the good news is you only do it once. They're now all happily on the network. My question is, how, and this is a really good question, how much less secure is 24 random alphanumeric characters than 63 random printable characters i understand that the 63 is as you might say phenomenally more secure but i'd like a number would it take a hacker decades instead of millennia months instead of centuries i'd imagine even the most determined hacker would give up after only a few days just how much security have i given up great question great question yeah um okay so here's what happens when you put a passphrase into wpa any passphrase the user puts in is run through a sort of an overkill hashing process. It takes the passphrase and the uh, and the SSID of your network and the SSID length, and it hashes, it, it concatenates all that, and it hashes it 4,096 times over and over and over and over and over into a 256-bit 
result. So, so the key that is actually used by the various devices on the Wi-Fi network ends up actually being a 256-bit key. Hmm. Um, so the source of the key is the passphrase and the SSID and the SSID length. So as, as we've discussed before, the attack on a what's called a pre-shared key, which is what this is, is trying them. It's just a, it's a brute force attack. Anybody who has access to your network, that is like receive access, as, as we know, is able to receive the SSID of your system if it's not turned off. And if it is, then that's not part of the hash anyway, since other devices wouldn't know what it was. So, so the only unknown in this hashing algorithm is the passphrase. So the attack on this technology is just brute force. You, you start with maybe all the words in the dictionary and, and essentially put a word in the dictionary through this, this overkill hashing, this 4,096 hashes of this to produce a trial 256-bit key and then check to see whether that works on the network. And if not, you – well, and, and actually you're able to capture payload from the network and, and see whether this key is able to decrypt the payload, which then tells you that it would work on the network. So, and that, so that's why this is an, a so-called offline attack. You're able to capture some traffic from the network, take it home with you or to your cray and <laughs> and just you know and pound on that data, trying every possible passphrase. So, um, sixty-three random printable characters is the most that the specification allows a user to put in. Now, sixty-three random printable characters assume that we had a like a seven-bit character set, so we're using most of the printable. ASCII. Well, 63 times 120, I'm sorry, 63 times 7, which is um, the number of bits in 128, actually, um, is 441. So you're taking, if you used all 63 possible character length and hashed that down, you'd be hashing 441 bits down to 256. So you're sort of starting with more more entropy and reducing it to 256. Um, in theory, there may be other so-called hash collisions. That is, there might be some simpler phrase that would also, also hash down to the same resulting 256 bits, but... You know, it's a secure hashing algorithm. Collisions are going to be minimized. So, and, and, and so it's it's still going to require a brute force attack. the The current wisdom is that twenty characters is eh, right on the borderline of what would be feasible for a brute force offline attack against WPA. So you really don't want to use fewer than 20 because that, that begins to border on not secure enough. 
Um, now, remember, in- though, in order to crack your WPA, somebody has to sit on your curb. They have to be within radio distance of your base station. No, no, no. That's the point of this being a fully offline attack. Oh, they, it, they could just capture a bunch of a uh, bunch of the stream and then drive off and work on it. Exactly, and that's ah. what I meant. That that's what I meant when I said they I could see. take it home to their cray. Of course, you did say that. I just yeah, wasn't and, paying attention. and and so and just pound on it offline. So right, and or do that. a parallel attack or use you know a distributed network of PCs. I mean, you know, there or but you know somebody pro- have to be pretty determined to do this. Yes, I mean, you know, exactly. So, so well, or, you know, they, you would be targeted. They would want to get onto your network specifically as opposed to, for example, someone wandering down the street looking for open Wi-Fi. Right. This, this is certainly a much higher level of attack than that. And your typical home user is probably not going to be targeted by somebody who really wants to get onto their network. However, a corporation certainly could uh-huh, be. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so... So Eddie was suggesting that he's used 24 characters. That's probably good. One of the things you do not want to do, and, the, and, and our answer sort of touches on this, is you do not want to leave the SSID default, nor do you want to leave it blank. Because one sort of future-oriented attack on WPA will be pre-computed hashes. That is, if the if you knew, for example, you had a Netgear uh, Wi-Fi and and there was a default Netgear SSID, it would be possible to do a different kind of attack rather than having to put the passphrase and the SSID and the SSID length into this function and and hash it like crazy. And in fact, that's what the reason they've used four thousand ninety six is they want to slow down this kind of attack by forcing 4096 hashings of this in order for it to be computationally intensive in order to make a single guess mm-hmm. so but the problem is there there are things called rainbow tables and i don't think we've ever really talked about rainbow tables uh they are essentially pre-computed hashes so so the reason that the SSID and the SSID length were added to this was specifically to prevent a, a pre-computation attack where all of the, for example, words in the dictionary, or maybe, you know, starting with A, then AB, then, a, then AC, then AD, then AE, and so forth, you know, basically pre-compute all the possible hashes that result from common words, and then quickly apply those against um, offline packets in order to crack somebody's encryption. So my, my point is that if you leave the SSID default, then you're potentially opening yourself to a pre-computation attack if that starts happening. Okay, so if I do a 20-character... Eh, I would say 24. What Eddie happened to settle on at 24 is probably safe. I would say nothing less than 20 is safe. And I have a I found a nice uh, page on the net with a with a link to a discussion of this. If 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 our listeners are interested and want to go into a little bit more detail than this, um, sort of without me interpreting what this page says, it's pretty technical. But there is a link in this episode number 128 show notes 
to a page that discusses you know the issue of this attack on um, wireless projected access pre-shared keys. Okay, very cool. Now, when you say safe, that's a very relative term. I mean, I I use. I mean, I'll be honest. I just use what a normally you know what it would be considered a normally kind of strong password, which is uh, something but memorable. It's probably only ten characters. I would say you absolutely want it not to be in a dictionary. No, I mean, and so that's the, it's got punctuation. It's it's mixed case. Good. It's got punctuation, but it's memorable for me. And uh, but it's not twenty four characters. Yeah, and let's hope that no one desperately needs to get into your wireless no, network. And nobody does. <laughs> no, I don't think so. By the way, I met somebody at MacWorld Expo. Guy who does a podcast, Dan's Mathcast, who has, says he's used the math. He'll he'll take a little clip of security now, like that early part there where you're talking about powers. And he'll use that and then use it as his math cast to talk about that math issue. So oh, cool. Good, good work on the math there. <laughs> I, when he first said that, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> but he says, no, no, you guys are always good. Don Sherman in Clawson, Michigan, looking for a shorter route. Steve, he says, I'm a graduate student in engineering and a huge fan of the show. I just finished listening to the most recent listener feedback episode. It occurred to me that on several occasions I've heard you say... You need three routers to safely employ WEP and WPA without allowing both WEP and WPA without allowing any nefarious activity on the WEP side to compromise the WPA side of things. Is there any reason why you need to use a router and not a switch to split the two networks? If so, please let me know, as this is how I have my network set up. I cannot use WPA with my TiVo boxes. Okay, let's let's re- review briefly this idea of of chaining routers the idea was that you could you could have your outside internet connection go to router number one and then uh, and that would be a wireless router running wpa or wep and then you would chain it to a second router which was also wireless running wpa or wep now the problem is if your if the inside router is the insecure one, then it is potentially able. That is somebody who cracks WEP. We know how easy that is now. Remember, it's less than a minute to do right, that now. Right. If someone cracks that, then due to the fact that that it's possible to make upstream connections through a router, which of course is how the internet works. We're all downstream of our routers and we're able to make upstream connections through the router that allows somebody on the inside that is on, on the inner router to connect to devices on that outer level router because upstream connections are permitted. So that's why it's not safe to have a, an insecure network chained off of your secure network. Now let's swap the routers around so that now the outer router that is the one connected to the internet, let's make that one the WEP, the insecure Wi-Fi router, and our WPA router where we have our, our all of our, our crown jewels and our high security Wi-Fi due, due to using WPA, that's the inner one. Now the problem is that all of the of the precious super secure network traffic goes out through the inner router to the outer router, um, which is the insecure one. The problem is 
as we discussed before, um, in the face of ARP spoofing, which is well mature now and developed for Ethernet networks and for Ethernet Wi-Fi, it is possible for it would be possible for a wireless attacker to convince the inner router, the secure router, that its IP is the gateway so that all of the precious Internet traffic on the inside would route through an attacker's machine on its way out to the Internet. So there is a if you if if you assume that that ARP spoofing could be present, then it is not secure to have the the insecure router upstream of the secure one because ARP spoofing absolutely allows essentially man-in-the-middle traffic rerouting. So it is not safe to chain an insecure and a secure router together in either, in either order. The only thing you can do that is safe is to have two routers that are joined by a third router. So you need the you, NAT. You can't just use a switch. Well, no, actually, what that so what the what what the out, outward most router in a three router configuration would be doing really is just giving each of the interior routers an IP. So to answer Don's question, if his ISP has given him two IP addresses, uh, then you absolutely could use a switch. I see. And the, you have to have two the, segments, basically. Ex- well, you actually, you have to have three segments. You've got your your insecure LAN, right. your secure LAN, and then a third little mini LAN that only has three devices on it. It's got the switch, and then it's got the two routers. Okay. And the reason you're safe from WEP there is that, I mean, in, in the, the only real attack that's possible would be an ARP attack. And you say, well, wait a minute, why can't I still spoof arp in order to get in order to fool the the outside interface of the of the of the super secure router the reason is arp never crosses a router arp is specifically used for local area networks no router will allow arp to cross across from from its land side to its wan side so so the only secure solution would be either to use three routers or, as Don has asked, if his ISP is giving him two IPs, then he could use a switch to connect those two routers. Got it. And be completely secure. Got it. All right. Good. Jeremy in St. Petersburg, Florida, wishes he had more choices. Hi, Steve. I was a bit disappointed over having to pay $72 for my VeriSign credit card security key. Due to $24 overnight shipping being the only option. Hmm. They could have just put it in an envelope. But I've received my key and I agree it is a really slick piece of technology. I ran into one snag, though, that I hadn't heard mentioned on the podcast when you and Leo were discussing them. The problem is with eBay and VeriSign's PIP site. Both allow you to only have a single security key associated with your account. This is unlike PayPal, which allows multiple keys. Because of this, I can't leave my football at home in the office and have my credit card in my wallet. I have to pick one of the IDs and only one to use with eBay and PIP seatbelt. I wrote an email to VeriSign Support and got a very nice reply from Gary Crawl, the technical director of the PIP program. 
He confirmed that VeriSign, like eBay, has no plans at this time to support multiple security keys. VeriSign, I can understand. They have a higher, you know, higher priority things on their plate. But doesn't eBay own PayPal? How can one site support more than one key but not the other? Anyway, this means I basically had to disable my football on eBay and PIP so I could use the cooler credit card key. My football will still get me into PayPal, but that's it. That actually was the experience I had, too. Yep. Yep. I just I wanted to to let our listeners hear Jeremy's pain um, <laughs> because we've all had it, too. Um, I don't understand why eBay hasn't followed suit. It is certainly the case, as we've discussed before, that the the VeriSign VIP technology now supports up to five um, credentials registered to a single account. And so the user of up to five credentials is free to use whichever one they want. And when you submit the the query, the authentication to VeriSign's um, authentication system, it'll check the the specified um, input against all five pos- up to five possibilities. So it's you know, and PayPal does this, but eBay and VeriSign themselves don't. So I just wanted to make sure that our listeners knew that, um, just for the sake of making sure they understand that. Yeah, yeah. And but you know, I keep uh, the football for use on PayPal, which is frankly still where I use it the most. Yeah. And I just use the card on just as this guy does on on seatbelt. I don't use eBay that often, but um, that's fine. I mean, yeah. And after all, the football is only five dollars, so it's not like he was having to right. you know end up deciding to scrap his seventy two dollar cost right. um, credit card side. Do you think there's a security reason for that, or is just a uh, just an implementation issue? There's, I don't see any security flaw in having multiple credentials. I mean, I right. just think eBay just doesn't care, hasn't gotten around to right, it. Right. Uh, moving right along, Marcio in London, UK, wonders whether, as opposed to I don't know, London, Iowa, wonders whether <laughs> IBM is spamming him. Hi, Stephen Lee. I've received a spam email. I know nothing abnormal with that. It was just another replica watches spam. Obviously, neither my email client nor my company's email server filtering policy seems to be finely tuned in. Otherwise, that wouldn't have slipped through. The curious bit, though, and the reason I'm writing is the sender's address is Casey at IBM.com. Could there be a trick changing the sender's address? Or is it the case that an IBM server or computer could be bot infected? Please let me know what your thoughts are. Well, it's interesting. I've I get sort of a, a little background flow of email like this, asking about you know strange spam sources. Well, people so I want to get spam from Twit.tv because I know that's used sometimes by spammers. Oh, and GRC has been sure. also. Um, essentially, what what's going on, Marcio, is that the the content of email which contains the from and subject and to and other headers is completely separate from the, the and, 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 and that sort of inside the envelope is completely separate from the protocol used by SMTP servers that is simple mail transfer protocol to to move that that email payload from one machine to another so from you know, random computer A to random computer B, which are email servers, you know, a sort of an opaque content will go from one server to the other. So there is there is the ability to trivially spoof the sender of the email 
just by putting anything they want to and typically something credible. I mean, you know, Leo and I have both been targets because we're credible companies and people might think, hey, you know, email from GRC. How strange. Hey, but, but well, I got to tell you, I think sometimes it's randomly chosen because I get uh, questions on the radio show all the time from people say, hey, what's going on? You know, I just got a bunch of bounced emails from companies saying I'm sending them spam. What's happening? Right. It's the same thing. Right. So I think I think sometimes they do it for credibility. I mean, IBM.com, clearly for credibility. But sometimes it's just they choose it from random from the mailing list. Yep. It's probably the case, Leo. Yeah. So anyway, to, to answer your question, Marcio, I'm I'm so I'm, I'm sure that IBM no. uh, machines <laughs> and servers are not infected. It's just it's so simple to spoof the source of email that is the sender. Now, you know, we've talked about this in the past. If you if you dig down into the archives of security now, we've talked about email headers and how they can be interpreted in order to determine the true source of of email because that's not spoofable. And so there is a way to determine what machine connected to your email server in order to send it a piece of email by following the headers back. But it's not just a matter of looking at the from address. Well, and of course, that's uh, why there have been these various moves towards uh, email authentication, which essentially right. is sender authentication. And, uh, and, and if, if that were to go through, if they were able to figure out a way to do that, you just reject email that doesn't have an authenticated sender and pretty much all spam would go away. Um, but, you know, because the email system was never designed for that. Right. We can we can hope for that day. Yeah, that's why about three years ago, uh, Bill Gates said, oh, I think spam will be a thing of the past next year. The problem and because Microsoft had an authentication scheme the problem is nobody's really been able to agree on what scheme to use. Right. Thomas Bonham has a question for Mac friendly Leo. Hi, Stephen Leo. I'd like to know if you know of any good encryption software for OS 10 10.5. That's uh, Leopard. I'm unable to use File Vault because of the fact that I have HFS plus with case enabled on the computer, doesn't like that. I'd really like to be able to encrypt the whole drive, but for now, I'd be happy just to have one folder encrypted all the time. What I'm looking for right now is something like TrueCrypt for the Mac. Any ideas would be great. Leo? Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> no kidding. There isn't something that's on, on the tip of your tongue that well, what, solves uh, what the What surprises problem. me that is that TrueCrypt has not been ported for the Mac. Right. Um, but it hasn't. Um, that's a very good question. I don't know. I mean, you can use PGP, but that's a commercial. I guess there's a non-commercial free version. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. I'll have to do some research. I don't know of anything, believe it or not, because most people use, if they're going to do the encryption, they use the file vault, which is uh, very similar to the, um, you know, the system level encryption on Windows. Ah, so so essentially, the Mac does provide a built-in oh, solution, yeah. which works for most people, and so that's probably kept people from doing something redundant. I, I think that's possible. Yeah, I'm not sure. He says he's using HFS with case enabled. I don't, hmm, that's interesting. I didn't know that you couldn't use File Vault in that case. And what's case enabled? Uh, uh, case sensitive, I guess. Oh, okay. But that's what I, I mean. That's what everybody uses. I'm not. I think Thomas, you should investigate why you're not able to use File Vault. Um, apparently there is, I'm looking that there, somebody has, uh, uh, been looking at a port of TrueCrypt. So I hope at some point, uh, they, Bruce Schneier is saying, I'm reading his blog. He's saying, I, you know, I hope at some point there is a TrueCrypt for Mac. Um, and of course, remember Mac is a BSD Unix. So 
there are right. a lot of Unix, you know, command line levels and scriptures you can use from the Unix command line, but that's going to take some cobbling. It's not as easy to use as TrueCrypt. Boy, I wish they would port it. I don't, I don't know why they haven't. Maybe there's some issue. I don't know of anything, and if anybody does, love to hear from you, and we'll mention it on a, on a, on a later episode. Right. But uh, Thomas, uh, all I can say is the problem with FileVault. It's like BitLocker. It it encrypts your whole home directory. So it isn't it isn't as flexible or as powerful or as useful as TrueCrypt. Right. Matthew Reeves of Alpharetta, Georgia, really wants to delete his files. I'm a lawyer. A lawyer. No, I'm a loyal Security Now listener, and I'm so thankful it exists. Well, thank you, Matthew. I remember once hearing you and Leo speak of a secure file deletion utility. I don't remember its name. I went to search the transcripts, but I couldn't find a way to do so. My, I think huh. that's probably true. So my question is, what is the name of the utility? And my question is, can the uh, Security Now transcripts become searchable if they aren't already and I missed it? Um, okay, to the last part, it is on my short list of things to do. Um, we've had a lot of requests for that. It is possible in the meantime to get Google to do a limited search since the transcripts are all being Googled. And so by using the advanced search features, you're able to restrict Google to a, a, a domain and I think even a, a tree of files uh, in order to have it say, look, you know, find hits for these phrases right here. So that can be done, but I'm I'm aiming soon to have uh, finally a, a search facility that is, is GRC wide uh, up and running. Yeah. Um, as for secure deletion, there are a gazillion various sorts of file shredders and things. It turns out, though, that. Most people don't do it right. Um, oh, really? Interestingly, yeah. Interestingly enough, um, we've. You may remember that, like I'm sure you will, Leo. In the old days, we were being told that NT was a C2 qualified OS. It it, it met some government standards for security. One of the things that is required for that is that the operating system be very careful about reuse. That is, for example, when memory is allocated to an application, Windows NT 2000 XP Vista, you know, er everything in the NT path or family will always zero the, the memory page. In fact, one of Windows background processes when it's not doing anything else is just rummaging around filling memory that's not allocated to anything with really? zeros. That's really and cool. Yeah, it is really neat. Now, similarly, disk space is zeroed, but it's not zeroed upon deletion. It's zeroed upon allocation. Oh, that's interesting. So what's interesting is if you if you delete a file and say that you then you also deleted it out of your uh, trash, well, it's been released, but we all, we're all familiar with various utilities that are able to undelete files. Um, similarly, anything that worked offline, like if you shut Windows down, it, would tur it turns out that that file data is still available on the hard drive. It's not until a program is, is being given sectors for its use that NT preemptively zeroes it. So... So what's important here is that everything that isn't in the process of being reused is left the way it was. So it turns out, though, that 
things are even trickier because if you encrypt a file, what NT does is it, because of the way the file system works, sort of a journaling file system, we've also heard how NT, like, for example, the file system integrity can, can survive power failure or the, the plug being pulled out of the hard drive and other things. NT is careful, for example, not to, to remove a unencrypted file, which you're in the process of encrypting until it has been successfully encrypted. Once it is successfully encrypted, then NT unlinks the unencrypted version, but leaves it on the hard drive. So you can have copies of unencrypted, Mm, encrypted files. Exactly. Still lurking around. The same is the case for for compressed files. Um, Let's see. It's compressed and encrypted. And there's one other class. Oh, and even, well, and and, and the the, the EFS system um, uh, uh, works in, in exactly this fashion. So anyway, the point is that our good old friend Mark Racinovich has solved this problem. Of course, we know that SysInternals uh, uh, Sys, Sys was purchased by Microsoft, and so there are, um, you know, his utilities, the SysInternal utilities are now available um, and linked to through Microsoft's site as opposed to his. Um, there is a program he has called S-Delete, S as in secure. It's just S-Delete. If you were to Google, you just put S-Delete space Sys internals. It'll take you. The first link is Microsoft's page. On our show notes page, we've got a link to the Microsoft page discussing Sys, uh, secure delete, S delete utility, and to the downloadable zip file. It's just a, it's a small command line utility that understands exactly how NT works, and it, it uses the defragmentation API in order to find the actual physical pieces of a file which Uh. you're trying to securely delete, and it goes out and zaps them before freeing them back to Windows. So it does it right. Many so-called secure delete utilities do not do it correctly. So, But we can trust Mark to have figured this out and done it right. And it's got a couple other cool things. If you're worried about, for example... Now that you understand that things you deliberately encrypted or things you deleted may still be lurking around, his you, you can give it – it's a command line utility. You can give it – I think it's a dash Z option, and it will go out, and it will scrub all of the current free space on your file system. So basically, you could just run it now, and it would deal with any history of – of stuff that you were hoping was gone, but may not be gone. Interesting. Now, Mac, that Mac has a uh, secure delete command in the file menu, but I wonder. I bet you it's not erasing slack space. And uh, I mean, but at least it would zero out the file, and I presume all copies of the file. But slack space is a big issue, right? Um, uh, for we may have mentioned this as well. For when you want to erase the whole drive, for instance, you're giving away the computer, you're giving away the drive. Uh, there's a free program, uh, open source program called Derek's Boot and Nuke. Yep, which, D-Ban. Which, D-Ban, which makes a bootable floppy or CD-ROM. And the reason you want a bootable floppy or CD-ROM is you don't want to be doing this from within Windows if you want to wipe the entire drive. Mark's utilities for individual files, but if you want to wipe the entire drive, D-Ban, you just, it's very simple. You, you Google D-B-A-N, 
and you make right. a make a bootable uh, floppy or CD-ROM, and then it says, "You want to erase the whole thing? Yes, please. Yes, yes, yes." And then you finally uh, can zero it out. Uh, I just was looking at the TrueCrypt page. Interesting. TrueCrypt five, which is scheduled to be released this month, will include OS ten support. Yay! So it's going to be completely cross-platform, which is nice. You could make a, for instance, an encrypted. USB drive or external drive on Windows and be able to read it on OS X. Plus, they're going to do a GUI version for Linux. Um, so that's a major improvement. There hasn't been a release of TrueCrypt since May. Obviously, they're working on this TrueCrypt 5. So watch for that. Who knows? Maybe by the time you hear this, it'll be out. It's well, not, it's not out yet. And question number eight from Michael Daniels. Applies to that? <laughs> yes. Well, we're not there yet. We'll get there in a second. <laughs> Uh, Stephen Barrett in Round Rock, Texas, would rather switch than fight. I know that it's really difficult to use another operating system that you're not brought up on, but why not just use something other than Windows? This probably sounds like another Windows sucks, or I'm a Mac fanboy that's irritated at everyone not using Macs, or Linux is superior to everything because it's open source. But honestly, why not? Well, Well, you you know, know, that's a question for you, because... You, despite <laughs> knowing more than probably anybody what's wrong with Windows, at least security-wise, you stick with it? Yeah, I, I guess um, I, I thought this was interesting because I do – this is another question that, that comes up over and over and over is people say, gee, Steve, you know, you're spending all this time talking about how horrible Microsoft Windows is and all the security problems it has, blah, blah, blah. Why not – I mean, why would you not – have moved off of windows right and you can't i was gonna say my real answer is this is where the problems are you're not allowed to (laughs) so this is where i am exactly i think we talked about this before you said hey if i weren't doing this if i were retired i probably wouldn't Uh, i use windows for the same reason actually i use windows maybe maybe more than uh that because for instance i use windows for adobe audition which is my editor my my audio editor and recorder of choice i've not found anything as good on the mac and so that's i use windows because i need a windows app well that is exactly my real answer aside from the fact that this is where i have to be is virtually anything i mean okay we were just talking about TrueCrypt, not yet on the mac but it's been on the it's been on windows right. for a long time I mean, for years, because we, we talked about it a oh, yeah. long time ago. And and so my my position is I'm and, and I and I talk to people who are frustrated that the thing they want to do is not available on their non Windows OS, but it is on Windows. Well, but um, it goes both ways. There are many dare things I, you could dare, do on the Mac. Dare, you can't do on Windows. So. Right, dare I say spin right. <laughs> well, there is, you uh, go. You're right. Perfect example. <laughs> Perfect example. But there are, and it's the same, I mean, there are things you could do on Linux you can't do. I mean, there's R-Sync. Uh, Windows does not have R-Sync, which would be a really nice thing to have. There's lots of things I could think of that aren't on uh, any given platform. Um, but, but, you know, to, to address his issue, uh, I, I personally think that people do get over-attached to uh, their operating system. Remember, you may love your operating system, but it doesn't love you. It's just a tool. Well, and Leo, you know, I buy a lot of software, and so in the same way that I'm I'm now buying ebooks for my Kindle right. on Amazon and I'm sort of locked in there right. um I I mean I've got a huge investment in way beyond just the Windows OS right. in all this stuff that runs on Windows. Well that's a good argument for open source. The sooner you move to open source the sooner you'll be 
you're freed from those shackles, the economic <laughs> shackles. Uh, you know, I use Windows, Mac, and Linux. I probably use Mac more than Linux or Windows, but 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 it's it's more equal than most people probably think. And and I'm happy with all three. Use the tool for the job you're 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 using. You know, you're working on. I think that's exactly right. For you know, as we know, I'm a free BSD Unix user for. Things where Unix serving is right. the, is the best solution, and there are you know I tried to use Windows as a news server, uh, you know a, a, a Usenet style oh, and an NTP, and it's just oh, it's God. really bad. No, all my web serving is done uh, from I, we use Red Hat Enterprise Server. I have two servers, uh, dedicated servers. Nobody else is using them, just me, and they're both running RHE, and I manage them. They're not managed. I manage them myself. And absolutely, I mean, these servers are rock solid and have been for years. Yep. And it's, you know, once you tune them, once you figure out, you know, get everything just so, man, they just run, you know, tens of thousands of requests a day, day in, day out. Um, Michael Daniels of Dallas, Texas, question eight, wonders if TrueCrypt is truly cryptic. Hi, Stephen Leo. I'm a longtime listener of this show. I've followed you guys since Tech TV. When Steve would occasionally appear on the Screensavers as a guest, thanks for the podcast. Keep up the good work. I have recently started to keep my files mobile by carrying a 120 gig hard drive around with me. However, after a short period of time, I thought, this is stupid. If I lose this drive, anyone can access my files. I looked around, found TrueCrypt, an open source encryption utility. I was wondering what you use and if TrueCrypt is indeed any good. I apologize if this question has been asked before, and I haven't made it through all the show archives yet. You know, I just got a USB key from Corsair that came with TrueCrypt on it. I was so pleased. Yeah, and the answer, Michael, is TrueCrypt is really nice. It's the best. Uh, Yes, um, we did an entire podcast on it, so I wanted to aim Michael and anybody else who didn't hear that back to the archives for our episode on TrueCrypt, where we take a very close and extensive look at TrueCrypt, the functions that it supports, the way its crypto is done, the, I mean, the really clever little special things that, that, that TrueCrypt is that, uh, that really make it our solution of choice. Yeah. And, and boy, soon, I'll tell soon you, to be on the Mac. When it's Mac, oh, man, I'll be happy. Yep. And that's actually a very good use for TrueCrypt is uh, an external hard drive or any external device that you carry around with you. This Corsair memory, uh, you know, they're, they, it's a USB key. They have 16 gig. They have 32 gig. I mean, this this is basically an external hard drive. Absolutely, you should be using TrueCrypt if you're putting private information on there. Yep. Yeah. In fact, we're going to do an episode also shortly about Iron Key, which we talked about briefly last week, which right. many people have asked about. And the, 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 the founder and chief architect of Iron Key is going to join us oh, good. Uh, to talk about his inspiration and to clarify some of the details of the technology. Oh, but, I mean, it really is. a it's, it's a very, very nice looking system. But I think, you know, given... Uh if you you know you, you it's hard to learn all the ins and outs of TrueCrypt, but once you figure it out, uh, it's just as secure, right? I mean, it's 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 just great. Oh, it's spectacularly yeah. secure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Don Hebert of Burbank, California, wants more pixels. Hi, Steve. I noticed in a photo that you use three monitors. So does Bill Gates. Hooking up two monitors is easy, but how do you hook up three monitors? And how do you use them? Where was that photo? I didn't see you uh, in a photo. Uh, there is a photo at the top of my page at grc.com. Oh. I think you just do grc.com slash Steve 
or Steve Gibson. I don't remember which. I think, or maybe either. And there, there's a shot that was taken by a Newsweek photographer many years ago of of me sort of grinning and you well, know, that leaning. was probably three different computers then. Well, no, it was exactly the same computer really? and monitors I'm sitting in front of now. Oh. I, that's why I got a chuck a, a chuckle out of the, our other. Uh, questioner who said he's you know in three years he's gone through three machines i tend to hang on to mine for a long time i mean they get kind of old and creaky i'm still using my win 2k box with three monitors Hmm. and to answer don's question you simply plug in video adapters and at least in the case of windows it will see your video adapters and you're able to arrange the monitors logically into one large screen and essentially just drag windows back and forth among the various monitors. Um, we used to talk about this a lot on the screensavers when it was a little more difficult. And right. there was a website that said which cards work together and stuff. But but since XP, it's been a lot. I, well, you're doing it on a 2000. Yeah, and, and 2000 supports multiple monitors just fine. Yeah. Um, to it's answer, best if you have three of the same cards, though, yes? Uh, it really doesn't matter. It's oh, okay. a little confusing. I have. A, I, sh- I should tell you, I do this a lot. So I've got many machines with like a hodgepodge of, of screens on them. Um, it's a little confusing if the monitors are different sizes because then they don't they don't right. really like stack next to each other well. So and there's like some weird ozone area, a, a, a rectangle <laughs> that you can't get to, right. sort of off to one side. But you, you want a rectangle. But, you don't want a, a you know some arbitrary parallel or box. Right, and yeah. you can do strange things. I mean, you you can you can stack them vertically or horizontally. If you had four, you can put them into a square <laughs> configuration. And there is a there's a cool little utility Ultramon that that I that I like and that I've had running in my tray for many many years, which allows you to assign hotkeys to just make Windows jump to different monitors. So, for example, I have Control-1 moves whatever is the current window to the left and in a a sort of a circular fashion, or Control-2 moves the current window to the right. So it's easy for me to just quickly move a window off to one side. Um, The way I use the monitors is I I generally sort of have things in different positions. I just like having more screen real estate. I mean, I'm able to work with a laptop with only one screen, but you know, when I'm when I'm settled down into you know mission control here, um, I do have like reference w- windows. For example, when I'm writing code and I need to kind of keep an eye on the Windows API, which is so extensive that it's impossible to memorize it all, I'll have the API reference up on my left window, so I'm able to just glance over at it, and I you know I don't want to cover up the the editing window that I'm typing in in order to see the API reference and vice versa. So there are places where you you really do need more screen real estate. I have to say, I, you know, I uh, bought a 30-inch display for my Mac, and uh, which is a single display, but, I mean, it's a lot of real estate. And it, yep. I'm actually thinking about getting a second one. I mean, it's funny how you, your needs expand to fill the real estate you have. <laughs> exactly. Right now just, I have a, a 30-inch and then a 24. The Windows machine is on a 24-inch uh, to the right of it, and I use Synergy so I can use one mouse and keyboard with uh, the, the two computers and two displays, and that works quite well. Yep. Um, Synergy is a really neat little program for Windows and Mac, and uh, and I just slide the mouse over. So in a way, it's kind of like an extended desktop, except it's two different operating systems. So that's kind of that's a nice neat. way to go. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. You got me thinking. Maybe I need a 30, a second 30. <laughs> They're so hideously expensive, though. You have How big are the monitors in front of you? Um, I've got SGI monitors that I've owned for years. Oh, They're right. 16, yeah. 1600 by 1024. And I've got my next machine set up already. I'm going to be switching to DVI. These are they're they're like custom card. They 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 were 3D Labs cards right. running on these SGI monitors. And at the time, they were available for a great price. And you know, I'm not gaming or anything on them. I'm just sitting here l- l- looking at text and editing and things most of the time. So I don't need any ultra high performance. But the machine I'll be moving to, I've referred to it before. It's that quad core intel that i call quadmire um and it's it's got it's got because it'll be running windows but that'll that'll be that'll be my move to xp and i've got beautiful 1600 by 1200 dell monitors uh lined up for that one i just haven't had any time to to make the switch yeah those dell uh, monitors are really nice oh they really are yeah i think i own maybe 15 of them yeah i have a few i have a few yeah um, let's see. Peter Bruschetto in Sydney, Australia, wants more discussion of enterprise security. Hi, Steve. I was excited to read the title of the last Security Now podcast, thinking you'd delve deep into the problem of corporate security and discuss it for hours and hours on end. Well, we just got started. Give us a break. Alas, it wasn't to be. I would like to share my experiences with you so that you could share it with your listeners. As At my previous employer, I was the network administrator for a software development firm with about 40 staff. Every developer had a company-provided laptop that not only had XP on it, but also required them to run IIS, the Microsoft SQL database, Visual Studio, and other such applications. Being laptops, they were often connected to third-party networks, like client networks, hotels, even their own home networks. Oof. To further complicate matters, while in the middle of a development cycle, many of the developers would refuse to install Microsoft's many updates. I don't blame them. Yep. Uh, updates, patches, server service packs to any of their software. As this had uh, caused their development environment to break. As you can imagine, I didn't have much confidence in the security of our network. The solution we came up with worked great for me, the administrator, and also for the developers. We implemented VMware oh, on all developer laptops. A VMware image was created for each client that the developers would then use on their laptop for the purpose of development and testing. This allowed their native Windows XP install on their laptop to be kept fully patched without also having to run SQL, IIS, and other problematic software on the on the outer machine. The VMware image was limited in its network connections and regular snapshots were taken, so if the image went bad, it could be wiped and rolled back to the previous snapshot. The added benefit to the developers is that when a new developer came onto a project, they could be up and running with the latest VMware image in minutes. I've since left this company and now work as an IT consultant for small businesses. This is more of a challenge, as I'm not only telling businesses what they can and can't do with their computers, but the experience and requirement level differs greatly from business to business. I'd love to hear other network admins' experiences with their IT security and the problems they've faced. Love the podcast, and of course, spin right. Well, I thought that was a very clever solution that Peter came up yes. with. We've, we've, of course, talked about virtual machines and the isolation that they, that they provide. And there were a number of people who sort of expressed similar sentiments of, you know, really, really being captivated by the, by the topic of enterprise and, and the challenge of enterprise security. So I wanted to, to, to have you share Peter's experience, but also to invite anyone who has 
their own stories like this, solutions, problems, dilemmas, that kind of stuff, to to drop a line to us. And it's grc.com slash feedback is the is the page where people can submit things. Make sure you put something in the subject line, like say corporate security or enterprise security. That'll catch my eye, and we'll uh, we'll try to give that some more time because I really think you know certainly it it's an interesting different sort of set of problems just due to the nature of yeah. of network and uncontrollable users and and telecommuters and and all that so it's 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 enough different from the from the the certainly the the related topics that we typically discuss i wanted to give it some additional time yeah we've never you know we've never uh, not done enterprise but we've never specifically done it and i think everything we talk about is applicable really to a wide range of computing. Obviously, exactly. a lot of IT pros listen. Exactly. Um, and I hesitate to just say this, you know, we're going to focus only on enterprise uh, because that would leave a lot of the audience out as well. Exactly. And and certainly we're not going to do that, but we just, we would never, well, I, I guess my, my point is that solutions like what Peter talked about great. have all kinds of applications. Yeah, that's useful across the board. Right. We talk about high-end computing. I think if you were to say what, what it is, it's high-end computing. Uh, which is applicable in a variety of situations, including the enterprise. This the Twit has never done much enterprise stuff because I've just never been that interested in it. Right. Uh, I've always been end user focused, uh, higher higher end user and high enthusiast focused. And we know that's where I come from yeah, too. So. Yeah. And and you know, we, uh, even though this it looks like a business and we have advertising and so forth, we're, we really do it for fun too. We want to cover the topics we're the most interested in. I'm sure there are many enterprise security podcasts out there you can listen to of course none of them have steve javier gordo of katie texas wants sticky windows oh yeah steve you mentioned sometime in the past a small app that would make windows windows edges sticky so that they'd lock to the edges of the screen into each other i change computers i can't find the name of the app i miss it and i've got to have it back what's it what's it called well i love this because i i totally understand uh, that sentiment. It, it's the program is called All Snap, and if we've got a link to it in the in our show notes for this episode number one twenty eight. Uh, but it's also just www.allsnap.org is the site. It's a tiny little tool. I have it running on every single one of my Windows machines. And when I, I mean, I, I almost want to like bring it with me if I'm if I'm forced to touch anybody else's window machine. I mean, I just, it's, I don't know, Leo. I mean, we, we've joked about it in the past. I used to sit there literally spending time trying to get my window edges lined up with the edge of the screen just because I didn't want any, I didn't want it to go too far. I didn't want to see any background coming through. You know, I like everything so sort of positioned right. And all snap just well makes it a snap. And it's funny when I was when I was doing a little digging around, I ran across another piece of freeware that appealed to somebody who was also an all snap addict. It's called Taskbar Shuffle, and it's now running on my machine. Uh, it's very simple also. It simply allows you to shuffle, that is, reorder your your taskbar buttons. Um, it's funny because I have some things that start up at the very beginning when I boot Windows. So they're naturally over on the left side of my taskbar, and I sort of get used to them being there, like my email client will be over there. But when I shut my email client down 
and then later, as I have, for example, during the podcast, and later start it up, well, now it comes up over on the right where newer apps are. And it sort of bugs me because I'm used <laughs> yes. to it being over there. Yeah. Well, with Taskbar Shuffle, you just literally, you just click on the button, drag it over where you want it, and you're able to put them in any order. It's like, and I have, I have to say, I've wished I had that for many years. Now I do. So there's also a link to Taskbar Shuffle in the show notes. And if you just put Taskbar Shuffle into Google, it'll take you right to it. Taskbar Shuffle. Oh, try. and Ooh. you can also, if you care, reorder the little icons in your tray. If you hold control down, you, you can grab the icons and, and move them around. I'm less concerned about their order than I am my main Windows Taskbar icons. But okay, cool. anyway, now everyone knows about uh, or knows again about AllSnap, which I love, and about this new little gizmo, Taskbar Shuffle. It's good stuff. Leo in New Jersey, I like that name, wants to keep control of his machines. Hi, Steve. My name is Leo. <laughs> Somebody's just tuning in is very confused right now. I'm 16 <laughs> years old and I'm the resident IT guy everybody goes to for advice. My question is this. I have a downstairs computer I use as a torrent box. Mom, dad, house guest computer. <laughs> Sort of, a throw, sort of a throwaway machine, yeah, I let guess. mom and dad use the torrent box. Would, <laughs> would Windows Steady State work for me? That's what we, Oh, Steady State. That's what we were talking about the other day. I currently, Yeah, I have my admin account as my torrent area, uh, my limited account for mom and dad. <laughs> Leo, you know how to treat your parents. If I wanted to make a Steady State account for my parents and another one for my house guests, would that work? Will I still be able to keep my admin account? So let's say I have to add software to the whole machine. Or update AV definitions, not just my account. How do I do that? Would I install software in the admin account? Does it then go to the steady state accounts? Also, AV scanning. Do I need to scan with an AV if I'm using steady state? What? What? How does it work? Well, we've never really needed an inter-episode teaser. <laughs> but that but was it. <laughs> that's what this is. Because Windows Steady State is the topic of next week's Security Now podcast. Cool. So if Leo cool. can hang in there for one week, um, we're going to answer all of those questions and talk in detail about it. I've been working with Steady State now for, I've been going steady with it for about uh, four weeks. I am very impressed. I'm going to be recommending its use in all sorts of environments. Um, it really solves a bunch of problems and uh, it would be a perfect solution for for Leo to uh, essentially control what his mom and dad and his house guests do with that computer when it's not under, under control of torrent. So just quickly, uh, do you want to s just kind of thumbnail what Steady State does? I think we mentioned it last episode, but just so people know what we're talking about. Yes, uh, it is a it's a it's a free facility that is now being offered by Microsoft. It was known in a sort of an unpolished prior version as um, uh, like a shared access toolkit for Windows. Something I, I remember. I don't remember the exact name, but it was like that. It has been been matured and packaged into a single, simple, easy download. And, and essentially, it, it has some characteristics of System Restore, where you're able, for example, you know, as, as we know, with System Restore, to back up if something bad happens to your machine. But it is way more bulletproof. It allows you to, to really lock down a system. Its typical use is... Is And it, again, it's sort of hailing from the shared access 
uh, area would be, for example, a, a machine that is a Windows machine running XP. It, it needs to be XP. Vista has this technology in some flavor built into it. Huh. So this is, this is not something for Vista. This is specifically for Windows XP, nor will it run on Windows 2000. It, uh, it, need, it needs the features of XP. But if you ever had a machine that you need to by sort of by nature expose to a hostile environment like for example in an elementary school where you've got a lab of of machines that you want to allow students to use or in a public library where where, where again you want to make some some machines available for doing internet research yet you know lord knows what the computer users are going to do to them this is a way of constraining what they can do and and at the same time protecting the machine from them my my particular focus was on was in a in a corporate environment which is the reason i i really got focused on this is would it be possible to allow the preservation the selective preservation of things like the contents of a a a user's my documents directory, oh, yeah. which is which is not the default configuration, but I worked all that out, oh. and that's what we're talking about. In addition to many other things, next week. Goody goody! I can't wait to find out. Well, you'll want to tune in episode one twenty nine, our next thrilling, gripping edition of uh, Security Now. We'll be on uh, January thirty first. And uh, meanwhile, Steve, have a great week, and uh, we'll see you then. Perfect. Security now.